2: Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow
4: Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part two of our series on the horse hoof. Now, in part one, we discussed the anatomical form of the horse hoof with an emphasis on the alarming fact that the hoof is essentially a highly specialized form of the tetrapod middle finger. So when you see a horse galloping around, yes, it is running around on all middle fingers and toes. (laughs) We talked about an ancient legend uh, about the horse ridden by Julius Caesar, which some artists have depicted as having docken hair and human feet instead of hooves, at least on the, the first two legs. Uh, Rob's idea, uh, I think, was that this it's possible that these stories could be based on observations of what are called polydactyl horses, horses born with extra hooflets on the sides of the primary hoof, which do in fact exist.
2: Yeah, this seems to be the more sensible uh, interpretation that you see taken by folks. Um, and I don't think anyone's actually arguing that these, were, the, the, these horses had, like, human four feet. Uh, but it looks hilarious
4: in the illustrations it does and we finally talked about the evolution of the horse hoof with the commonly accepted narrative being that millions of years ago the ancestors of modern horses lived in uh, more forested environments maybe warmer wetter environments they were much smaller maybe about the size of dogs and had multiple toes per feet then due to climate and habitat changes they became grassland dwellers which drove them to evolve larger body sizes and uh, and select for galloping speed, and these changes coincided with the loss of peripheral toes until you end up with the modern horse and its relatives in the genus Equus, so that would include the zebra and the ass, all having only one toe per foot, the columnar hoof. Now, today we wanted to continue the series on the horse hoof, getting into uh, a couple other things about horse hoof evolution as well as the invention of the horseshoe. But before we do that, I wanted to take a brief detour into a metaphorical connection to the hoof, which concerns medical diagnostics and more generally the realm of statistical reasoning. So, there's a famous aphorism widely used in medical education, often invoked by practicing physicians, and it goes like this. When you hear hoofbeats, look for horses, not zebras. Uh, Rob, I think this saying may have come up on the show in the past, though I couldn't remember when, uh, but I'm sure you've heard this before, right? Yeah, yeah, and it
2: basically is what it sounds like, right? It's, uh, you know, whatever the, the evidence seems to indicate. Go for the more likely and more statistically reasonable explanation for
4: for for the evidence. Right. So I was looking up the history of this quote in a chapter on medical aphorisms in a book called White Coat Tales, Medicine's Heroes, Heritage and Misadventures by Robert B. Taylor, uh, published by Springer. So I'll refer back to that chapter in a second. But yeah, Rob, like you said, the point of this aphorism is that when a patient presents with symptoms X, Y, and Z, you should start by thinking about the most common conditions within the population associated with that cluster of symptoms rather than jumping to assumptions about rare diseases. So, for example... If a patient presents at a U.S. clinic with flu-like symptoms, it's better to start by investigating the possibility that they have the flu or common cold or now maybe COVID rather than to start by investigating whether they have contracted the Hendra virus from a flying fox in Australia. Taylor traces this saying back to an American medical researcher named Theodore E. Woodward, who lived 1914 to 2005, who taught at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. And it seems actually the common form of this aphorism might be a paraphrase, and the more accurate original quote uh, may have been, Don't look for zebras on Green Street. Uh, that might be a little perplexing, but uh, it makes sense in the context because Green Street was the location of the University of Maryland Hospital in Baltimore, and he was teaching mm-hmm. at the University of Maryland to students there. So, of course, you can see why it would need to be rephrased to make more sense outside of its original locality, but I also think the localization to Baltimore geography highlights something important, which is that this aphorism is only useful when you're talking about a known population of patients in which the frequency of certain diseases or conditions is fairly well understood. Because if you were talking to a group of medical students, maybe in a a region of southern Africa where zebras are abundant, it might make sense to use the aphorism inverted, I guess, uh, depending on how many horses there are around as well. But in the same sense, you have to know what the frequencies are in the population you're looking at before deploying this.
2: Mm, Yeah, that's true.
4: Now, I find this, the reasoning behind the saying actually kind of interesting, because if you interpret it in the usual way, it's a piece of advice that can seem rather obvious, like common explanations are more common than rare ones. But I think as a general rule, when looking for explanations, we do have to be reminded to start by considering what is most likely in terms of frequency because there are all kinds of mental biases that constantly tempt us to start looking for highly unusual causes for unexplained phenomena before we've exhausted all of the extremely commonplace candidates. Uh, for one thing, unusual causes and explanations are usually more exciting. They kind of stick in the mind because of our level of interest in them, and they can quite easily then come to mind when we start searching around for an explanation. They're sort of at the top of the toy box. Mm -hmm. Right now, in this uh, section of the book I was talking about, uh, Taylor makes an interesting point about the zebra aphorism, uh, which I hadn't quite considered. I was just thinking at the, the first order level of more common explanations and less common explanations. But Taylor also writes, quote, as a clinical corollary, experienced diagnosticians look first for uncommon manifestations of common conditions rather than common manifestations of uncommon diseases. Hmm. Now, that that seemed really interesting to me. I, I hadn't quite thought about it that way. And of course, it would depend on exactly how uncommon you mean in each clause of that sentence. Like if you were to you know represent them as actual percentage chances and stuff, the math might break out in different ways. But if a certain set of symptoms appears in i don't know only 3% of cases of an extremely common condition that that affects you know millions of people every year it is probably still worth investigating that diagnosis the uncommon manifestation of the extremely common condition before you look at the possibility of a condition that matches the symptoms very closely but you know you might only see only a couple of cases in the world per year it's extremely rare you'd still get way more hits of confirmation on the on the uncommon version of the common condition it reminds me of various discussions we've had
2: about cryptozoology and the and interpretations and misinterpretations of dead animals, and in some cases, um, dead human beings, uh, where you're looking at some rate of decay. And yeah, are you looking at it as the as an uncommon manifestation of a common condition? And in other words, are you looking at it as kind of like a novel pattern or appearance in decay of just a, a normal mundane animal? Or are you going to jump to the, to that uh, extreme level and think, well, no, this is just how it looks. And we've just never seen this creature before.
4: Yeah, yeah. However, I want to come back on the other end, because if you search for medical case reports citing this aphorism, which I was doing, a lot of times it will be specifically to uh, discuss cases where it was a zebra on Green Street, the rare and unexpected diagnosis that turned out to be correct. Uh, mm-hmm. So just one example I was looking at um this was a case report published in Clinical Practice in Cases in Emergency Medicine in 2019 by Lupez et al. called Beware of the Zebra, Nine-Year-Old with Fever. Uh, I believe this incident took place in the U.S. state of North Carolina. So it was a, a nine-year-old girl. Uh, whose family spoke only French, and they presented at the hospital with, uh, uh, with the, the the patient having abdominal pain, vomiting, intermittent fevers, fatigue, and headache. And because there was a language barrier, everything had to be done with the help of an interpreter. And it seems that this led to some maybe some original misunderstandings about the the case history. So the doctors tried to diagnose based on all the normal explanations that they would be likely to see in their patient population, but none of the common diagnoses really fit her case. Her condition continued to get worse. It even became life-threatening. And the breakthrough seemed to come when the doctors began looking outside the normal slate of conditions encountered in their practice in the United States. Finally, they learned that the girl's family had just in the weeks before arrived from the Congo, where malaria is common, the care providers eventually ordered a test that would put them on the right track. Uh, They write in their their report, quote, this test was a peripheral blood smear, specifically a thick and thin smear, which revealed Plasmodium uh, falciparum, and this is one of the, the protozoa responsible for causing malaria, leading to a final diagnosis of cerebral malaria. And then they write that from here they contacted the 24-hour CDC hotline to uh, to immediately get the uh, appropriate anti-malarial medication. They put the girl on a quinine drip and admitted her to the pediatric intensive care unit. And then they say, quote, remarkably, within four weeks she made a full recovery and returned home with her family. So thankfully, the patient was all right in the end. But she potentially could have died if doctors hadn't made the locally unusual but correct diagnosis and given her the right treatment. And so the authors say in their conclusion, quote, many of us are taught the common aphorism in medical school, when you hear hoofbeats, think horses, not zebras. When approaching a nine-year-old with fever, we hear the hoofbeat symptoms and tend to think of the typical diagnoses that are commonly seen in our pediatric population. Yet, if we are not thinking about the zebras, we will miss this common presentation of a disease that is uncommon north of the equator, which could lead to high morbidity and possibly even mortality for patients. So it's very good that they were able to discover this, intervene, and and uh, probably save the girl's life, but it highlights how there's a difficult balance. Like, if you go looking for zebras before you look for horses on Green Street, you will waste a lot of time and resources and potentially cause frequent misdiagnoses that could harm people. But if you never consider the possibility of zebras on Green Street, there will be rare but very real cases where you could save somebody's life, but you don't. Yeah, that's,
2: that's a great point. Um, yeah, certainly looking at the, like the professional end of the scenario, because on, on the other end, like say the user end and the media end, I mean, uh, zebra on Green Street, that's a great headline. You're gonna. That's a yeah. headline that's gonna stick in your mind, and then when you go in to see the doctor, you're gonna be like, "Hey, doc, is it possible that uh, a rare amoeba is uh, eating my flesh or something to that effect?" Because that's what you saw in the headline. That's what you saw on the uh, uh, the the documentary series
4: that you, that, uh, that that um, uh, sensationalized uh, a rare case. Right. I mean the the difficult thing is like because of the way we emotionally react to stories like this, it. I, I feel like it, it kind of tends to have the effect of making us think, well, maybe then I should start looking for uh, diagnoses of unusual diseases in in patient populations. So it just highlights like diagnosis in the specific case of medicine and searching for explanations for unknown phenomena It generally is really difficult. It involves a balance between prioritizing likely explanations, which are, you know, by very definition almost always going to be correct but also being open minded enough to catch the unusual ones when they arise and uh, obviously i think a, a big part of the art of medicine is is gaining good intuition and and establishing sound uh sound processes to prioritize explanations in a reasonable way based on what we know about frequency but then also to be able to catch the cases that are unusual and and intervene appropriately to help people.
2: Hmm. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples.
4: All right, uh, you want to talk a little bit about the evolution of the horse hoof?
2: Yeah, yeah, we should probably talk a little
4: bit more about how they, they came to run about on their middle fingers. Uh, we talked in the last episode about a a pretty commonly accepted story of... How that evolutionary process occurred, but there was still some uncertainty about exactly why the one toe making contact with the ground is favored over keeping the uh, larger number of toes that the ancestors of horses used to have. And to some degree, I think that question is still not fully settled. There are still some questions about why exactly the one toe was favored. We do know that the ancestors of horses and zebras and asses had multiple toes per foot, but uh, what is gained by going uh, quad bird, you know, the the middle fingers across all four feet? So the evolution of, uh, it's called monodactyly, having one toe, monodactyly. uh, it has long been assumed that that was useful for allowing a large animal like a modern horse to achieve greater running speed. But I came across an interesting alternative idea explored in a paper called The Evolution of Equid Monodactyly, a review including a new hypothesis published in Frontiers in Ecology and Evolution by uh, Christine M. Janis and Raymond Bernor. And basically here, the authors ask, what if the evolution of the modern equine hoof was a product of selection for endurance rather than speed? Meaning that the primary advantage conferred was in the evolution of an efficient and energy efficient spring foot that would support long distance trots at medium speed to locate better food resources. So uh, under their hypothesis, the loss of extra toes may have been a coincidental byproduct of the selection for the more efficient spring foot, which helps the horse conserve energy while foraging rather than an adaptation for top-speed running, which, uh, again, is assumed to be primarily for the purpose of escaping the jaws of predators. Now, I cite this not to say that I think their hypothesis is is definitely correct. I have no expertise to decide between which explanation of the horse-hoof evolution better fits the evidence, but... This possibility made me think back again to the zebras on Green Street saying about how sometimes certain explanations seem more likely to us not because they're actually more common, but because they're more mentally salient. Uh, It reminds me—I've talked before about this idea that I have uh, the sort of sex and violence principle in evolutionary reasoning, where uh, what I think I've observed is that when people without or sometimes even with biological training— are trying to think of possible evolutionary explanations for a trait in an organism, we are a little too quick to resort to explanations involving either predation or mating. And we often overlook extremely common mechanisms in nature, like temperature regulation and energy efficiency, which play a huge role in the success of a life form, but I think maybe they're not as interesting to our brains as sex or violence, so we're less likely to think of them. They they do not bleed, so they do not lead in the mind.
2: Yeah, it kind of reminds me of past discussions we've talked about concerning the Stegosaurus, for example. You know, um, and uh, if memory serves, you know, there have been various interpretations over the years for their, their those curious plates on their back, um, as well as varying interpretations of just how they're positioned. Um, but Yeah, you can uh, with something like that, you can you're inevitably you're going to find those uh, explanations that have to do with mating or protection from predators or protection uh, when they're uh, in conflict with uh, others of their kind. But uh, yeah, I guess sometimes these uh, these ideas that they're used for temperature regulation or something like that may may feel less exciting, may, may feel more mundane, though. I guess you could also argue that maybe the more exotic or mysterious the uh, the feature is like say those uh, those uh, back ridges on the stegosaurus. maybe that cancels it out to some degree. I don't know, but it's hard to imagine a like a seven year old or an eight year old playing with the toy stegosaurus and be like, "Look, Mom and dad, this guy's warming up in the sun, <laughs> watching. <him. laughs>
4: That's not what bathtub dinosaurs do; they bite each other. <laughs> But again, I want to make clear: I'm not saying I think that the the uh, trotting, foraging, spring hoof explanation uh, is necessarily better than the than the high speed running explanation for the horse hoof. I, I I don't know, but I think it's important to remember to consider those types of explanations as well. Now, another question uh, that is has come up in. Several uh, things I was reading is about uh, does it should we really say that the horse only has one toe? I mean, it really does basically have only one toe that makes contact with the uh, with the ground. But in what sense did it really quote lose the other toes? One example of this uh, counter narrative I was reading is in an article uh, in the New York Times by Veronique Greenwood published February eighth, twenty twenty, called "A Horse Has Five Toes and Then It Doesn't." And this article tells the story of a researcher named Catherine Cavanaugh, a biologist at the University of Massachusetts Dartmouth, who was looking at preserved horse embryos in the lab when she discovered something very interesting, which is that during the earliest stages of gestation, the area of the embryo that will eventually develop to become the foot, become the hoof, uh, in that area, the embryonic horses have five toes. Uh, so this period uh, during development only lasts for a couple of days before the extra toes begin to sort of fuse and vanish. But to read from the article briefly, quote, the discovery implies something profound about how anatomical development works. As an embryo puts itself together, growing from t- from a tiny wad of cells into multiple specialized tissues fed by blood vessels uh, and linked by the winding threads of nerves it is following a template. That template is subject to evolution, just like other things about the animal. But some moments in the process or some routes that development takes may not easily be altered. And so the, the researcher uh, here, Catherine Cavanaugh, is quoted saying something about the early steps in toe development is stabilized. We don't know why, but that's what we think is going on. Uh, So I I found this also interesting because it's an example of how stages in development can become evolutionarily fixed, even when they differ from the final form. So like Mm -hmm. for some reason, as the horse is growing as an embryo, it needs to develop five fingers before or five toes before it can lose four of the toes per hoof. Um, so, you know, eventually it will have functionally one toe making contact with the ground, but the development process has to go through this other stage first for some reason.
2: It reminds me uh, of something we discussed in our whale episodes about the blowhole of the whale being seen to, of course, um, through the fossil record, travel up the snout, up to the top of the head. But we can also observe this movement in the womb as the, um, as the, the, the fetal whale is developing.
4: Mm, Yeah. Another interesting thing about the horse hoof uh, is that th- there are some people who have pointed out uh, how vestiges of the missing toes can still sort of be found as little uh, sort of ridges on the sides of the hoof. Yeah, I ran across this a lot
2: in some of the, uh, uh, the the veterinary sources I was looking at.
4: But don't let this take away from your mental enjoyment of thinking about the horse as running around on its middle fingers, which it, it functionally is. It is.
2: I mean, it to me, it makes it even more weird. It's kind of like if you were to, it's, it's kind of like if you're looking at Kermit the Frog and someone were to tell you, like, there's a difference between saying, hey, there's somebody's hand in there and, 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 so, and someone saying, actually, all the bones of a human hand are present in Kermit the Frog, uh, but they have been <laughs> repurposed and formed into the skeletal structure of this uh, bipedal frog creature. Like, that's, that's even crazier. And I, I feel like that's more in line with what we know about
4: the tooth Splendid analogy. Bravo. All right. Are we ready to talk about the horse shoe? Yeah, this is uh, something that uh,
2: originally I didn't think we were going to cover, or if we were to cover, it, we might come back. But I, I felt like it's kind of so closely linked to our understanding of the horse and the human use of the horse. And at the same time, in discussing this, we are going to be kind of blowing through the domestication of the horse uh, rather quickly. Uh, like this is a topic that has received a lot of attention over the years in in varying fields. I mean, it's uh, there's genetic research, there's archaeology, there's um, you know various cultural inquiries. Uh, uh, it, it's kind of all over the place, and there are a lot of unanswered questions about you know, especially when you get into you know the exact who's and when's and where's of say horse domestication and even the development of the horseshoe. But I feel like covering the horseshoe also helps us understand the hoof a little bit more. So briefly, talking about the, uh, the modern horse, the modern horse has a long and pivotal history as a human steed. Uh, many animals has, have, of course, served as mounts for human riders, and, and many have served as pack and draft animals. I, I know that at least on the artifact and perhaps elsewhere in some core episodes, we've touched on the importance of the camel and the donkey. But the horse, the horse is just a whole different matter. Both in terms of like the impact that it's had, like the I think the larger impact that it's had globally, and also just how it has captured the imagination. Uh, not to you know diminish the camel or the donkey, because in particular regions the camel and the donkey have been far more important. Whole books have been written about the camel and the donkey, uh, and I've, I've read parts of them. Uh, if you want to hear a little bit more about that, go back to the uh, the monster fact episode that I did on uh, on donkeys of Dune, which touched on this a little bit. Now, as, as we've discussed, the, the modern horse evolved over the course of 50 to 60 million years from a, a diminutive ancestor, um, and then it would have reached identifiable form somewhere around four to 4.5 million years ago, then migrating across the Bering Strait via some sort of a, a primitive land bridge into Eurasia about 11,000 years ago, and becoming extinct in North America after that. Uh, and it would not come back around the globe to North America until it was reintroduced via European conquest in the 15th century CE. Now of the wild horses, three ancestors, two went extinct, and a third, the Taki or Mongolian wild horse or Preswalski's horse, uh, these are all the different names for the same creature, essentially. Um, This survived only in captivity and then was subsequently, has been subsequently reintroduced into the wild, though with some important caveats worth discussing, should we come back around to talk about the reintroduction of a species. Um, There are lots of sort of ups and downs with that particular story, as there are with some other species reintroduction tales. Now, much has been written about the role of the horse in the history of human conflict. And there is indeed just so much that we we could and, and I guess should one day discuss uh, about uh, that. You know, the use of, say, chariot technology, even the saddle. Like there, there are just so many different angles to take. Now, as pointed out by equine warfare expert Anne Hyland, and this is in Brian M. Fagan's The 70 Great Inventions of the Ancient World. Uh, DNA evidence suggests that the domestication of the horse took place independently in several different places and times, and uh, according to them, and this was a, this book came out in 2004, uh, so I'll, I'm going to touch on a more recent uh, source on all this in just a second, um, they were talking about the earliest domestication having possibly taken place on the Eurasian steppe somewhere around 4000 BCE, though they did highlight that the proof was inconclusive. I've also seen other sources just put it that the geographic origin of horse domestication is simply an unknown. And um, there are, of course, a handful of likely areas and times based on different findings spread across Eurasia from as far west as Iberia to as far east as Siberia. Now, more recently, the more recent source I was looking at on this, though, was a 2021 analysis of ancient horse DNA. Uh, and This seemed to narrow it down to the Eurasian steppe, the Volga Don region, So that would seem to possibly be the strong contender for where. The who, that's a little bit more complex, uh, is pointed out by Amber Dance in a solid 2022 article for Smithsonian Magazine titled, When Did Humans Domesticate the Horse? The region was home to diverse peoples who may have engaged in horse domestication. And the earliest time period, the when in all of this, sounds like it was maybe um, 4,200 years ago, pushing us back to the... 2100s BCE. Based on all of this, though, Dance also points out that, quote, clear evidence of horse domestication doesn't appear in the archaeological record until about 5,500 years ago, and that would push things back, obviously. Now, as Highland and, and Fagan pointed out, stud records from 2300 BCE and what is now Iraq include data on donkeys, mules, and some horses. There are Sumerian proverbs that refer to horse riding during this time period. Um, but uh, yeah, like I say, this is a topic we could go on about uh, at some length. But suffice to say that the evidence points to this general time period, and but it has still long been a topic of dispute. Now, one thing that I liked in Dance's article uh, is that they point out that horses were coexisting alongside human beings long before we were able to ride them or really do anything with them. Um, They were around during the time of Stone Age human beings. They no doubt inspired Stone Age human beings and human populations. Uh, Our ancestors depicted them in their cave art, but it would have been a long time before they could figure out how to master these beasts and truly harness the power of the horse.
4: Yeah, I don't know if this is still the dominant view, but uh, I recall reading years ago that it, many researchers thought that uh, humans probably hunted horses for food before they domesticated them.
2: Yeah, that's that's what I saw uh, indicated in, in these sources I was looking at as well. You know, I mean, you see them from afar. They look cool. They look really neat. Look at that, those flowing manes. I mean, it's kind of interesting to think that some of the some of the uh, impressions we have watching a horse running about uh, with its, its kind uh, you know across the field you know we're, we're co- maybe we're feeling some of the same things our ancient ancestors would have felt you know these sort of deep down impressions uh, but with the added level of we probably don't think about maybe uh, running them down with our our spears and uh, cooking them up later and making things out of them but of course this would have been this was how we interacted with, uh, with Pretty much everything in the in the uh, natural world uh during that time period and of course if we were going to hunt a horse we would have to depend on human ingenuity uh human strategy human tool use and eventually when humans figure out figured out how to truly harness the horse um, they also had to employ various tools so if anyone out there if, if you're like me most of your experience with horses is probably in video games where you you break a, a wild horse or train a wild horse by doing something like i don't know whistling at it or uh you know you, you jump up on its back I, I was asking my son how do you how do you get a horse in zelda and he's like oh you just jump on its back and i don't know you do something else and then you're good to go
4: yeah and uh, in breath of the wild is kind of a bucking bronco thing you jump on the horse <laughs> and if you can hold on long enough while it's trying to kick you off then it becomes your friend
2: there you go. Yeah, then that's fine for a video game, but um, the reality is a lot more complex. If you read any like serious westerns about uh, breaking horses and so forth, you get into a little uh, uh, Cormac McCarthy. You're gonna, you know, it's 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 a longer process. Um, There's a lot more uh, a lot more kicking, um, maybe a few more uh, busted ribs in the process. And so, one thing that Highland and Fagan point out is that. Uh, as humans were mastering horses they inevitably turned to bovine control mechanisms so cows were domesticated much earlier humans had had much earlier figured out some of the ways that they could use tools and things they they, they built to control these horses large and and powerful creatures. And they were able to adapt some of those for the domestication of the horse. And they evolved from there to include things like metal bits and harnesses, ultimately things like armor, horse armor for battle, uh, chariot technology, and of course, things like uh, the saddle and stirrup loops. But all of this discussion thus far has been in service of the horse hoof and of course, the horseshoe. As we mentioned already in uh, in the previous episode on the horse hoof, the hoof, while certainly an amazing adaptation, is not indestructible, and the domestication of the horse took this creature out of its sort of normal environment and, and, uh, and activities and placed it in those that suited us best, especially in the use of things like um, agriculture, travel, ultimately warfare, And at some point, and much like horse domestication itself, likely various points in various times in ancient history, humans who made use of the horse realized that hoofs require special care and that this care could, in fact, be uh, preventative care. Uh, So the hoof,
4: like the human foot, could be protected and reinforced. This is one of those things like, uh, like, drinking animal milk that's uh, the questions like who's the first person who tried to do this uh, you really got to wonder
2: yeah I, and again this kind of gets into sort of the everyday uh, nature of the horse and horse related technology it, it just seems so common uh, you know it's the stuff of westerns and, um, and and fantasy shows fantasy shows in which the horse is not the most fantastic element you know we're focusing on the dragon but meanwhile here's this animal running around on its on its single toes. And we have augmented this creature with various contraptions and straps and bits. And also we have, uh, we have nailed these, these shoes. We call them a shoe, but you know, it's like a, it's like an iron loop onto the bottom of their, their hoof walls, uh, in order to make them more capable of keeping up with what we need them to do. Technologically enhanced is the horse. Cyborgs, yeah. Yeah, yeah, in, in some <laughs> respects. Now, there have been many different approaches to, to this over the ages. Because, again, like the basic nut of it is the realization that, oh, man, we're rough on these horses. We should, uh, we're having to, like, clean up and, uh, and take care of them after we, we use them too hard. Let's try and protect that hoof a little bit. And there have been various ways to sort of address this, again, in different times, and different places. Some early examples from parts of Asia have been based in, uh, apparently, in uh, medicinal organic wrappings to treat injuries. So mm-hmm. you're, you're working your horse too hard. The horse is suffering uh, various uh, uh, injuries or ailments of the hoof. So you start wrapping it up in things to protect it and, uh, and to, to heal it. And then it seems to be a case of, of treatment becoming preventative, where it's realized, oh, you know, let's just keep something wrapped around the hoof or at least when we're using the horse, or at least in certain environmental circumstances, and that can help make the hoof last longer.
4: That's interesting.
2: Then there's this whole area of early hoof boots. Uh, Now, these are not to be confused with the hoof boots humans make and wear themselves so that their own feet can look like hooves. Uh, If you're not familiar with these, treat yourself. Go do an image search. Uh, A lot of them are cloven hooves for like satyr costumes but other times they are horse hooves for horse
4: related dress (laughs) when you first i didn't realize at first you meant like uh that these were for for costumes or recreational i was like what is the functional reason to make your foot into a hoof to be a satyr or to be a horsey Um, and you
2: find you know some of them are very goth looking some of them are more on the furry end of the spectrum. Um, but yeah, I saw some of these recently at a, um, at a Renaissance festival that I went to with my family.
4: Mm. There's a, a Seder guy over there walking around on hoof boots, man. You think being in high heels for a long time is rough. It, it would turn your foot into a hoof. I know
2: it does. It looks, it looks unpleasant. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, but it's, I guess it's like, like really awesome high heels, right? I mean, nobody's wearing those for comfort. You're wearing them to, to look cool. Yeah. And uh, the same goes for those those weird goat boots you might be wearing to the wren fest all right so what we're talking about here not not those tough sorts of hoof boots these are basically different approaches where you would take like a make essentially like a, a leather sheath for the hoof uh, sometimes augmented with metal studs on the bottom essentially making you know you think about basically the the same sort of uh, Um, adaptations you would make to a human boot you know well let's wrap that let's wrap that foot up in leather or uh, what's a little slippery let's put some studs on the bottom of that so it doesn't slip around and it's also worth noting that modern hoof boots exist as um, horseshoe alternatives Uh, you see a lot of this particularly in the the realm of natural horsemanship uh, sort of like uh, modern backing away from some of the um the the aspects of horsemanship that might be uh, you know considered a little bit too rough or unnecessarily rough, especially for what we might be asking of our horses in the modern age. And so uh, you might see a hoof boot, which in many of these cases, they look like, like little like sports shoes for a, a horse. Uh, they can slip those on. And I'm to understand that also sometimes they're used in addition to a normal horseshoe. Equestrians out there listening to the episode, uh, if, if you have some thoughts on hoof boots, Uh, Right in, we would love to see them. Uh, uh, Same goes for people who just like dressing like satyrs. We also want to see your hoof boots. Nobody needs to feel left out. But then there's also the hippo sandal, and this is exactly what it sounds like. It is a sandal of sorts for horse hooves. Um, This was uh, these were especially common in the northwestern Roman Empire, and it was uh, I think largely a temporary solution. So the idea is this is not something that was nailed on. It was something that was strapped on. And if you, you look at examples, it looks like basically like a strap-on horse hoof. You can see that like it, it, uh, these were generally made out of iron. They would, uh, they would cover the, the bottom of the hoof wall, uh, and then you would strap it on. But it wasn't going to be on there long term. Once you got wherever you were riding to or, I don't know, after battle or whatever the scenario is, uh, then it's time to take these hippo sandals off. And then eventually we get to the proper iron horseshoe, which everyone knows what this looks like because it exists in the, in the public mind outside of mere equestrian interests uh, and even outside of its use on the horse. It has become an artifact of some significance across multiple cultures. It is this U-shaped twist of iron that is actually nailed into place in the horse's hoof walls. Um, the origin of this particular invention or artifact is also difficult to, well, nail down, uh, If I guess you could say, with different possibilities emerging. I've read that the Gauls are thought to have possibly um, innovated this. Others have said uh, the Celts may have done it um, or being among the first to do it. Uh, and there's some evidence stemming from ancient grave sites. But one thing to keep in mind here is that you, initially you might think, oh, well, they're made out of iron. At least they're going to keep longer, but then we have to realize iron would have been precious, and therefore iron would often be reused or even reforged, thus robbing us of evidence, in many cases, of these particular artifacts. Hmm. But it's possible that the use of, uh, of of iron horseshoes go back to perhaps 400 BCE. But like a lot of this, the use of iron horseshoes is rather broadly difficult to define and, and nail down because their use often bumps up against and coexist with other forms of, um, protecting the hoof. Uh, so you might have a, like a a period of time in a, in a part of the world where some people are using a horseshoe, some are using, uh, the hippo sandal or some other, um, innovation or, or indeed where there'll be a whole culture that's not using anything. And, and they're, Mm. um, depending on say, just switching out horses and find, you know, realizing that they can't and shouldn't just run the horse to death, but they may realize, well, we just need to switch them out more. And this is going to be our approach to making the most out of a given hoof and making the hooves and therefore the horse itself last longer for us.
0: mm mm-hmm.
2: Now, the horseshoe itself has a life all its own uh, at this point outside of uh, of merely nailing it in place on the, uh, the bottom of a horse's uh, foot. Um, as we've touched on a bit already, the horseshoe has long been seen as a good luck icon in many different cultures and many different times. And it's it's only kind of interesting to chase down like why this is like, what why did people start? admiring the horseshoe and nailing it up and uh, attracting some level of significance to it.
4: Very good question. I, I often find myself wondering about things like this, like how did a certain uh, item or image come to have good magic or bad magic associated with it?
2: Yeah, yeah. So I, I one of the first places I turn to uh, for an answer on this is the book Magical House Protection by Brian Hoggard. Uh, a former guest on the show. Uh, I think he was on last October while uh, you were on uh, parental leave. Uh, But the book deals with various things that people have hidden away in their walls and under their floorboards uh, throughout Europe and the U.S. predominantly, but also just throughout the world as a way of protecting the house from bad luck, evil spirits, and what have you. And Hoggard wrote that, uh, yeah, you you find horseshoes uh, being associated with good luck throughout the British Isles, Europe, the United States, quote, and it would seem the rest of the world. He writes that the horseshoe is sometimes displayed pointing upward, quote, so that the luck doesn't run out, Uh, which I thought was fun. You know, this idea that's like, well, don't don't have it facing down because then all the luck's going to run out of the ends of the horseshoe. Hmm. But meanwhile, in other areas, other traditions, it is common to display the horseshoe with the points down.
4: I think of it with the points down, I think, because uh, I think of it hanging up just by a nail through the middle. Yeah, that may, that's the easiest to do, right? If you hang yeah. it the other way, you've, it's a little more
2: complicated. Or, well, I guess it depends. I mean, you could, the, the, the thing about the horseshoe, I guess, too, is it is made to be nailed in place. Mm-hmm. And therefore, uh, it can be nailed in its intended place, the bottom of a horse's hoof, or it can be nailed in place on a barn wall or above your door or what have you. Anyway, Hoggard highlights two main reasons for the horseshoe's perceived power. One and it's certainly a big one is the close relationship between humans and their horses. You know, these are animals that that were highly important to the people who owned them and/or used them. Um, They were animals that we ultimately cared about, and we also had various. uh, you know, supernatural traditions concerning them. And if not your actual mundane horses, you have these ideas of mythic horses and so forth. Um, and this is something that also influenced the use of, of horse skulls and things like that in other traditions. Mm-hmm. The other key fact that he highlights is that these are made of iron, and iron was thought to provide protection against, quote, witchcraft and the fairy folk. Yes. And, as, as Hoggard chronicles in that book, iron horseshoes and iron nails were often used in these household protective magics, hidden in walls and so forth. I also looked at a, this was an older paper, but I thought it, it, it highlighted some some interesting concepts. This is an 1896 paper by Robert M. Lawrence, published in the Journal of American Folklore, titled "The Folklore of the Horseshoe." And Lawrence points out that the, the horseshoe, though shaped the way it's shaped for practical reasons, obviously, it would have essentially stood in or resembled pre-existing and potent symbols in different traditions and in different cultures. Mm. And he highlights uh, some of the key ones here. So picture the horseshoe, just a standard horseshoe, and then think about these. Uh, The first one he mentions is the idea of of an arch, just a protective arch, something that would be, even in an age before horseshoes, positioned above a doorway or uh, on a threshold. Uh, I believe he highlights, um, I want to say, a Scottish tradition of having an, an arch uh, shaped from um, from just uh, uh, the branch of a tree would sometimes be used like this.
4: Well, this may be saying the same thing as saying that it sort of resembles an arch, but it also sort of resembles a doorway, which is like an yeah. arch. And good luck symbols of various kinds are often put on or around a doorway.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think that's that's a pretty solid one. The next one he brings up is that a horseshoe is also reminiscent of a serpent. And therefore, it could tie into various traditions and, and uh, involve the use of some sort of a serpent symbol. Be that a serpent that's, uh, you know, it, I guess it depends what your snake is doing. It may, be, it may be straight. It may be coiled up. It may be eating its own tail. I mean, there's so many different ways the snake has been utilized in, uh, in different iconography um, over the ages. But uh, this one seems sensible, the idea of like the horseshoe as a serpent. Another big one, the horseshoe as the crescent moon. Hmm. Now, the next one is one that he, he, he writes that he thinks the evidence is mediocre for this. And he's kind of begrudgingly mentioned it. He's like, I'm going to mention it, but I don't like it. And that's that the the um, the horseshoe could also stand in for varic, various cephalic imagery. So the horseshoe as phallus.
4: Huh. I, I need to have the case made for that. It's not yeah. evident to me. Yeah, I looked around for
2: more sources on this to see if there was anybody advocating for this, and I didn't find anything. Uh, maybe it's out there, and I just couldn't find it. I did see some images of some Roman phallic um, icons and charms that maybe kind of remind. Like, I could maybe see it. Like, there's more than one way to uh, create a, a phallic symbol, and some of them are, I guess, more horseshoe-like than others. But mm-hmm. still, uh, I think maybe Lawrence is right in saying that maybe there's not as much. Uh, sense behind this this one i thought was interesting the prong shape of the horseshoe as a deterrent to evil spirits or as a kind of trap so uh, the idea that the horseshoe is either the thing that's going to kind of like catch the limb of an evil spirit you know mm-hmm. uh you know like oh you, you put your, your 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 limb your arm in there and now
4: you can't get it out or kind of like the prongs of some sort
2: of a poking fork
4: okay, yeah the the horseshoe does have a shape that seems to contain
2: yeah, and this this lined up with a lot of what uh Hoggard wrote about concerning witch bottles, which bottles would often have a bunch of nails in them, and the idea that like here's this evil spirit coming into your house and then it it smells some of your hair that's in this bottle that's buried under the the floorboards. Oh, it went into that bottle after that hair smell, and now it's found a whole bunch of nails. Good luck getting out of there spirit, iron
4: nails, maybe.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, I believe they would have been in, in most of these cases. Now, Lawrence also points to the sacred nature of the horse and the virtues of iron, as, as Hoggard did. He points to examples from various cultures and traditions, uh, including the ancient Romans, Arabic traditions, Chinese and Scottish traditions. So, again, it's one of these things when you start, it's, just, it's spread all over. Um, some other ideas that he mentions include the horseshoe is a thing that captures, traps, or transmits bad luck. Um, the, the like possession position is sometimes important here. And like, it could be a situation where it's like, okay, here's the horseshoe. You got all your bad luck in that. Now leave it on the ground and see if someone picks it up and catches all that bad luck you just put into it. Then there's an idea of numerology coming into it, particularly concerning the number of nails in a horseshoe versus the number of nail holes, um, he writes, quote, in Northumberland, the holes free of nails are counted. As these indicate, presumably in years, how soon the finder of the shoe may expect to be married. And yeah. I guess in this case, they're like, you know, you're out in the field, you find a horseshoe. It's like, oh, I found a horseshoe. Let's find out how long I'm going to be single. <laughs> Which, and again, I, you know, we're not familiar with, with this tradition and we can kind of snicker at it. But I guess there are a lot of things like this. I mean, it's kind of on a very very uh like slender level it's almost like you know not stepping on a crack right you know mm-hmm. like uh, we know that's not there's not accurate but we can't help but think about it when we do it and so i can imagine you know there could be this tradition where it's oh i found a horseshoe exciting for me maybe i'm going to take this home and put it up over my uh, over my doorway for good luck but also uh what if it's right what if i am three years mm-hmm. from finding my wife that sort of thing
4: well also i mean things like this are done for fun even if people don't necessarily believe it's literally predictive. I mean, people, oh, yeah. you know, she loves me, she loves me not on flower petals and stuff.
2: Yeah. Catching the the flowers at a wedding and so forth. The other thing he mentions is that you could consider the horseshoe in its resemblance to a halo. Hmm, okay. Yeah, so... Uh, I don't remember that coming up at all in our our episodes about the Halo. We did a, a series on the Halo, and it was a, that one was a lot of fun. But uh, I guess again, we might just think of it like: what are some major icons and symbols within any given culture that could then? Here comes this artifact. This here comes this horseshoe. What does that horseshoe remind us of? Now, outside of all these superstitions and and so forth and older traditions, the emblem of a horseshoe remains, I think, really potent. Um, One uh, example of this that came to mind is the various cartoon um, interpretations of this, as well as how it's presented sometimes in science textbooks. The horseshoe magnet has become a kind of fixed symbol for magnetism, despite the fact that horseshoe magnets are, are technically obsolete since like the 1950s. You don't you don't need a horseshoe shaped magnet. All the magnets on your fridge are likely not horseshoe shaped.
4: I was thinking about the horseshoe magnet, uh, and especially when you were talking about the the various magical powers associated with them because of the way horseshoe magnets are represented in cartoons as, like, emitting beams of magic Mm -hmm. power or with, like, zigzagging lightning of magnetic, I don't know what, you know, the, like, zappiness coming out of them.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it might be a scenario where you stop to think and maybe you're like, hey, do I know how magnets work? Uh, and then instantly you 're struck with that cartoon image or that or that little icon from your science textbook growing up where oh yeah, there it is horseshoe lightning bolts now I got it now I can move on now another concept that may that some people may be thinking of there 's also this um, horseshoe theory of politics, hmm. which i 'm to understand i don 't i, I, I didn 't know a lot about it previously, but it 's my understanding it 's also it 's not something that 's really that much of a thing within actual political science, but you sometimes see it in a lot of popular discourse about people's political leanings and their ideologies, this idea that instead of it being like a sliding linear scale between uh, on one on one end, uh, like leftist extremism and on the other end right wing extremism, and then in the middle, you know just um, just you know middle of the road, um, uh, you know neutrality and so forth then um, instead of it being shaped like that, we should really curve it, and that it's more of a horseshoe, and that by virtue of this horseshoe shape, it's illustrated that the extremes of either side are actually closer than you might think, and this is generally—generally, generally it's employed to talk about like either like a, an overarching theme, like perhaps that— uh, in the extremes, there's more of a draw towards like a, a strong leader type or totalitarianism or something, or that you might find a particular sentiments, say like an anti-vaccine sentiment in both the far left and the far right, despite these groups having little else in common in terms of their ideology.
4: Yeah, I, I've heard people using this analogy in different ways. I mean, in, in it, I, I think in one sense, it is often used to mean that people think that at the uh, far extremes of the political spectrum, people actually come to share some political ideas. And then I think the other idea is that, is that at the furthest extremes of the political spectrum, people have more, I don't know, uh, sort of personality-based or epistemic things in common apart from political positions. Uh, and I'm not sure which version of the, uh, of the model people are really talking about when they invoke it often.
2: Yeah. And I, I do, it kind of comes us back comes back to our discussion earlier, though, about like, how do we, you know, interpreting data and, and thinking about like the underlying truth of a given situation or a mystery? Like, obviously, the way people think about the world, their different ideologies and their political viewpoints. I mean, there's a lot of complexity going on here. And that complexity can be overwhelming. I mean, as we try to make sense of our the, the worlds around us, the larger world, and perhaps even the closer world of our our, 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 friend circles and our families and so forth. And it might be tempting to, to say, but Hey, look at this horseshoe, look at this. I think this explains it all. You know, it provides maybe a simple model that may, I mean, maybe it provides some insight, um, mm-hmm. but also a level of insight that at least you can sort of nod your head at and think like, okay, well, this kind of lines up with some of the things I'm observing.
4: Well, yeah, I think another uh, twist, for example, is uh, whether or not it is useful to think about political beliefs as a spectrum at all, meaning that they uh, extend along a single dimension, uh, or whether it's more useful to decompose political beliefs into a number of different types of, uh, I don't know, preferences and uh, personality traits. And then in a, say, a, uh, a representative democracy with two major parties, we represent, uh, we we discover that uh, political behavior manifests in varying degrees of like or dislike for those main two parties. But, you know, that, that doesn't fully explain people's, uh, the depths of people's beliefs and preferences.
2: Yeah. Though in isolation, it can at least seem to make some sense. Uh, I had a case of this over the weekend. I was in a I was in a city that has a lot of crystal stores, so I wasn't necessarily out to venture into a crystal store, but by virtue of where I was, I just was going to wind up in one eventually. Oh, and yeah. um, I was looking looking around at them. Crystals are beautiful, uh, you know. I, I I think they can they can they're nice to look at, and maybe they're a nice focus sometimes to take you out of the past and the future and put you into the present. But um, they have all these little notes on them about what they're good for and what focusing on the crystal will allegedly do for you. And on one table, I found one that uh, it was promised would help me connect with, quote, Christ consciousness. Mm. And on the other, it would help me communicate with extraterrestrials. Mm -hmm. And so, generally speaking, I don't know, I would expect that people looking to connect with either uh, would have rather different worldviews. You know, the person Mm -hmm. with the Christ crystal and the person with the extraterrestrial crystal. Like, maybe they want different things out of life. But also, they may have both wandered into this crystal store. Which, which makes me think, think of the, you know, the ends of the of the horseshoe, uh,
4: you know, arching towards each other. Every crystal store I go in, I ask for their Nixon consciousness crystals. <laughs> what will help me communicate with Nixon? He's out there somewhere. Oh, man, there's got to be a crystal.
2: There's got to be one that'll do it. Um, un- unrelated to, to Nixon, though, in, in discussing this, I am also thinking, I don't think Lawrence mentioned horns or antlers, but this would seem, at least just, you know, off the... The top of my head, this would seem to be like a potent symbol to jump mm. to you know, when yeah. interpreting like how people connected with this horseshoe, with this, you know, uh, f- for all intents and purposes, this new uh, artifact that lines up with various symbols of of, of potency, like you know, the, the horns and, and and antlers have have
4: long been and still are uh, things of symbolic power in a quite literal sense in their biological context, but then in yeah. a metaphorical sense to humans, yeah, yeah.
2: All right. Well, on that note, we're going to go ahead and close this episode out. But we'd love to hear from everyone out there if you have thoughts about uh, the horse hoof, the horseshoe. Uh, interpretations of the horseshoe, uh, the use of hoof boots, be they um, equine hoof boots or human hoof boots. uh, Everything is fair game right in. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, you can find all of our core episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind on Tuesdays and Thursdays in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed. On Mondays, we do listener mail. Wednesdays, we do a short form monster fact or artifact. And on Fridays, we do weird house cinema. That's our time to set aside most serious concerns and just talk about a weird film.
4: Huge thanks to our excellent audio producer, J.J. Posway. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other to suggest a topic for the future or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com.
0: Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.
4: Today's episode is brought to you by Visible. The future of wireless is here, and it's transparent.